0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The more people try Brown's chicken, the more they say it tastes better. We cook it better, so it tastes better. Fresh eggs, milk, and grade A chickens mean it tastes better. That's the thing about. Low Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed? a podcast that provides a voice for the voice It's a suburban Chicago murder case that went unsolved for nearly a decade. Notoriously known as the Brown's Chicken Massacre, the restaurant owner, his wife, and five employees all shot to death and put in the freezer in 1993 their bodies found the next day. It just shook up the suburbs. I I mean, not that you would expect this anywhere, but it's just uh, where it happened, how it happened. You know, seven employees were found in a... it, you know, in, in the restaurant, and uh, and what happened was, long story short, uh, their family members were getting worried. They weren't home. It's early in the morning. Where are they? And then the discovery was made, and it just uh, changed so many people's lives beyond, you know, the victim's family's lives. We have circumstantial evidence pretty right well at the scene, we have circumstantial evidence that he committed the crime, we have circumstantial evidence that he was involved and that he actually committed the murders. Both Degorski and Luna were arrested in May of 2002, after Dagorsky's ex-girlfriend told police they confessed to her about their roles in the slaying. It wasn't until 2002 that DNA evidence helped crack the case. Police arrested James Degorski and Juan Luna, both now serving life sentences. It appears the prosecution understands that this is an uphill battle. The jury will not hear the videotape confession of Juan Luna. What they will hear, though, are two key prosecution witnesses. That would be Degorski's ex-girlfriend and also another friend of Degorski's. Both these women say that Degorski told them about his role in the slayings. In the meantime, uh, we are told as well that prosecutors are ready to go but are going to have to deal with the fact of that lack of hard evidence. Opening arguments begin this morning. I'm very pleased with the verdict, uh, but Judge Gaughan's decorum order is still in full force and effect. As you know, this case is not over yet, so I'm very limited in what I can say. How confident are you that you might convince them to spare his life? I certainly am going to do my level best. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media podcast. Join me this week as we begin exploring the tragic case of the Browns Chicken Massacre, aka the Palatine Massacre in Palatine, Illinois, in 1993. This case is very extensive, so this will be part one of the mini series that I will lay out the facts and we will discuss the case, the victims, and what kind of impact the crime actually had on the city of Palatine. In any murder case where there are multiple victims, the pain stretches far and wide. In the Browns Massacre, the victims ranged from high school students to the older couple who actually owned the restaurant. So again, join me this week as we take a look back at a crime so brutal and cold-blooded the whole town was left on edge. One thing about Brown's Chicken and Chicago is that anybody who lived in Chicago in the 1970s and 80s and even 90s are familiar with Brown's Chicken. It was such a staple in the area that one of the most famous actors currently in television actually starred in one of his earliest roles as a worker for brown's chicken and that is one steve carell big news from brown's chicken while we've always cooked our chicken in cholesterol-free cottonseed oil we now have cholesterol-free batter too so our chicken is cooked completely cholesterol-free and it tastes just as great as always we figured a lot of people would like our new, healthier way of cooking, but quite frankly, the response has been better than we'd anticipated. Brown chicken, it tastes better, and it's better for you. While the Chicago Bulls were in the midst of their third championship season run, the city was ripe with corruption, and rent in the city was going sky high. Crime in the area was another thing on the minds of many Chicagoans, and even though there was a decline in the murder rate from the previous year— It was still something to be considered. Now, crime was beginning to make its way out of the city and into some of the suburbs that may have not been ready for the violence that was actually headed their way. According to the Chicago Tribune, in 1993, three out of every ten victims were under the age of 18. In the same article trends the paper states the city victims are getting younger and the killing ground continues to shift away from the home and towards public places which are becoming decidedly unsafe this led to an even bigger exodus to the suburbs people who have once been able to afford to live in the city now had to find suitable living conditions near enough where they could either take the train or commute by car the murder rate may have gone down, but that didn't tell the whole story. In another article about crime from the Chicago Tribune, reporters spoke with Dr. Kenneth Paul from the Centers for Disease Control. He was the chief of the youth violence team. And he said that, quote, a decrease in the total homicides is good, but it is very disturbing to see younger and younger victims in a larger in larger proportion, being committed with firearms. So 847 people were killed in Chicago in 1993, about 100 less than the year prior. While the city of Palatine is a suburb located just 30 miles north from Chicago, it doesn't mean they are immune from the dangers of drug violence or you know petty crime or murder even. According to the city of Palatine, there was an enormous population growth during the 1970s and 1980s. And from 1960 to 1970, the population grew from 11,500 to just over 26,000. But by 1973, they were approaching 30,000. And again, the most recent estimates from July 2016 have Palatine with a population near 70,000. So needless to say, over the past three decades, there has been considerable increase in the amount of people that live amongst the city. Now, the city is a mix of residential, commercial, and light industrial office space, making it an ideal place for anybody to raise a family. And it again, it's only 30 miles away, so that does make it ideal for a commuter to live. Now the city is also extremely proud of their award-winning schools, and it cannot go without saying that the population boom was partly due to the increase of living costs in the city in which I mentioned before. This would have led some people who may not have been in the small town type of the city and this would in turn leave many more chances for having a few bad apples in the bunch. Drugs were still a driving force. Well, the fact of the matter is there's still much of the driving force today to commit crime, even unspeakable crimes. But despite all the great things the city has to offer, trouble always lurks in the shadows. That is what happened on January 8th. 1993, when the tranquil city was shattered by the events at Brown's Chicken that night. Reporters Flynn McRoberts and Michael Lev wrote the headline story for the Chicago Tribune, Seven Massacred in Palatine. Seven people were fatally shot and their bodies found Saturday in walk-in coolers at a family-run chicken restaurant in Palatine. Nearly 24 hours after the grisly discovery in the suburban shopping mall, Police would not name a motive. As police inside the Browns' chicken and pasta searched for clues, some of the restaurant workers had speculated that the restaurant's safe may have been what attracted the killer. And the shocked townspeople who gathered outside joined those from Texas to California whose towns have met mass murder in places as unremarkable as a fast food franchise. Among those killed in Palatine were the couple who bought the Browns' Chicken just months ago, and the husband lost his job in a corporate shakeout. They had an immigrant cook who took the job three weeks ago after bringing his family back to the United States from Mexico. Two local high school students who worked at Brown's part time. Those victims were identified as Richard E. Ellenhelt, his wife, Lynn Guadalupe Maldonado. 46, who was the cook. Four other employees were also slain, tomb of whom Michael C. Castro and Rico L. Solis, 17, were from Palatine High School. The other victims were Palatine residents Thomas Menez, 32, and Marcus Nielsen, 31. The Palatine police refused to give details of the slains, but Elgin Police sources, said an Elgin man, Martin Blake, had been taken in for questioning Saturday in connection with the killings and had been transferred to Palatine police. Now, a Browns employee said there was a worker at the restaurant by the same name. Palatine police said they found the bodies at about 2.30 a.m. Saturday, more than seven hours after the closing. The alarm was raised when parents of one employee called police concerned that their son had not returned home from work. When officers arrived at the store, they spotted the rear door open. Inside, they found the gruesome discovery. Seven bodies, some face down, two in walk-in refrigerators. The slaying stunned all Brown's employees, many who rushed to the restaurant at daybreak and basically to find out who had been killed. Several said that they were supposed to be working that Friday night, but had changed their schedules to get a rare weekend off for weeks jason georgie 17 of palatine had been asking supervisors for a friday night off so he could spend it with friends quote i feel terrible for whoever it was who took my place unquote saturday morning outside the store where he and others stood vigil most of the day was a scene like no other tears and heartbreak were the theme of the day While police would not discuss, again, a motive behind the robbery, employees congregating at the restaurant had expressed uneasiness about what they said was lax security at the store. Georgie had said that employees had discussed the establishment's vulnerability, particularly that a rear door usually was left unlocked and that the store's floor safe sat about eight feet from it. Quote, it's just a bad situation, he said. You can't help but wonder what would have happened had that door been locked. Georgie said the side rear door was left unlocked from opening until past closing because employees used that door during shift changes and to bring in supplies. As I covered in the Austin Yogurt Shop Murders, it was a crime that gave parents pause about letting their kids work the late shift. This was a decade or so after the yogurt shop killings, and kids were still making up much of the workforce in the world of fast food. Investigators from the Cook County Sheriff's Police and Multi-Jurisdictional Task Force had joined the Palatine Police in searching the inside of the restaurant and the bushes outside. Now, according to certain resources, two prior stops had been missed, and these were... According to Karen Brandon, hours before the seven people were found murdered inside the restaurant, police had dismissed concerns of two families worried about workers who hadn't come home. Again, police even visited Brown's Chicken and Pasta twice that night, first on the urging of the distraught father and later during a routine patrol. But again, police never went inside. But during that routine patrol, police saw the brother of one employee peering in a restaurant window and ordered him away, saying there was nothing to worry about, family members said. Nearly three hours had passed between the first police visit and the discovery of the bodies early Saturday, according to interviews with the victims' families. Now, while investigators have not said what time the seven victims had been shot, the revelations about the family's inquiries and police actions raise questions about the possible missed opportunities in getting started on the investigation. As we all know, the first 48 hours of any investigation is the most vital, so they were obviously a little behind if they could have found the bodies hours prior. One family member also said that he believes the hours between the first call And the discovery might have been the difference between life and death. At a news conference, Cook County State's attorney, Jack O'Malley, said, We have no criticism of the police investigation. Obviously, we would have preferred it if the police could have discovered the crime sooner or while it was in progress or beforehand. Palatine Deputy Chief Walt Gassier said the police have no record of contact with the family of Guadalupe Maldonado. Now, Pedro Maldonado had gone to the restaurant at 1.30 a.m. Saturday to look for his brother. But as I mentioned earlier, he was shooed away by police because police said there was nothing to be concerned about. So the department at that time was checking on those allegations of these missed opportunities. At first, there was a flurry of tips. The tips have dwindled and continued to dwindle. Some came from those convinced their tip would crack the case. Others just had a hunch that they ought to call police. They received more than 2,300 calls from private citizens and law enforcement agencies. And basically, when you have that amount of tips, it becomes a little tough to sort through what is real and what is not. Because a lot of times, in a lot of these cases, you find a lot of disgruntled ex-employees, disgruntled ex-lovers, and a lot of people will go out of their way to make somebody else's life completely miserable, even if that is implicating them in a crime that seems unimaginable. It has happened many times many times before. And police are very aware of this, so they take every call seriously, but they also take every call with a little bit of a grain of salt, knowing that if this person did have this information, they should have probably come sooner. But the probe entered its 11th week, and the number of investigators going through those tips had dropped from 8 or 9 to about 30, which at its peak was about 50 people going through those. So, again, so they lost about eight or nine people, and that had basically been their filing system. I mean, this was 1993, so we're talking about uh, not a lot of computer work. I mean, they may have been putting this stuff into the computer, but a lot of it was probably just paper files, and, again, this is the early 90s, so... The internet really didn't exist, and it was just very difficult to keep all of these tips, uh, you know, in line. Because, again, you're going you're to have all these different families, all these different backgrounds, with all these different reasons for people to possibly be connected to the crime Back in 1993, the Chicago Tribune was still a thriving newspaper with a significantly large newsroom, and they were all over this story, and the reporters went looking for how many teens make up the workforce in this fast food industry. Stephen Franklin and Nancy Ryan wrote an article titled, Fast Food Work Gives Teens Cash But Worries. The article goes on to say that the explosion of the nation's fast food industry and its heavy reliance on teenage workers has put money in teens' pockets, but has also exposed them, experts said, to school problems, job-related injuries, and crime. Quote, we don't employ kids during the safe hours, we employ them at night when it's the most dangerous, said Tom, last name I can't pronounce, a Chicago lawyer and and an activist on child labor issues two teenage workers who were closing a brown's chicken and pasta outlet in palatine on friday night were among those victims as i mentioned before and again the killings apparently occurred around uh, between 9 p.m and 2:30 a.m the restaurant owners dick and lynn of arlington heights were also killed along with an adult cook Workers at the restaurant who were not on duty Friday night said they were concerned that the restaurant was unsafe, especially because of the back door that I mentioned before was habitually left unlocked. And again, if you work there, you know this stuff. So knowing this and knowing that it takes a multitude of people to run a successful fast food restaurant, unfortunately, information about a safe being close to an unlocked door is something that can easily... Get out. So, of the nation's 5.5 million workers, 18 years and younger, about 40% work in restaurants and fast food operations. And that was according to Joseph Kinney, director of the National Safe Workplace Institute in Chicago. Teens are working longer hours and later hours at the restaurants. Kinney and other experts said that has exposed them to a variety of potential dangers. Now, government statistics show that the number of teenagers seeking workers' compensation for on-the-job injuries has increased dramatically. He said, we are talking about thousands and thousands of requests for compensation, but that is much lower than the actual number of injuries, Dr. William Halperin, associate director of surveillance for the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health said. A recent U.S. Bureau of Labor statistics survey showed that teenagers and women accounted for the bulk of those temporarily disabled on the job at fast food outlets. Now, the study also showed that teenage cooks were also injured twice the rate as adult cooks. So, in Illinois, for example, the number of child labor law violations went to 2... <laughs> oh, this is just crazy. In Illinois, for example, the number of violations went to 3,486 in 1999 from 176 in 1984. So, needless to say, uh, they were cracking down. Unfortunately, uh, on the heels of the complaints about the poor enforcement of the child labor laws, uh, a national crackdown had been in place, and Burger King actually had to settle a $500,000 settlement with the federal government, and the U.S. Labor Department netted some 11,000 violations Unfortunately, under a 1938 federal law, 14- and 15-year-olds can work only 3 hours a day and a maximum of 18 hours a week when school is in session. They are also limited to working from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. during the school year. This was in place in 1938, long before the term fast food was ever muttered by the public. Burger King was accused by the federal government of illegally requiring young teens to work later and longer than permissible at nearly all of the company-owned stores. During the same crackdown, the government did file charges against basically all of the other big names in the industry, people you know like Arby's, McDonald's, Taco Bell, as well as the uh, now-defunct Sizzler Steakhouse, which has become a punchline. As a sign of you can tell us to do one thing, but it doesn't mean we'll do it. The Illinois Department of Labor did not find any employers between 1983 and 1989, despite those over 11,000 complaints that I had. Illinois has no restriction on workers 16 years and older, but state law workers do state that 14 and 15 year olds are limited to only work three hours a day, 23 hours a a week, and may not work longer than till 7 p.m. on a night shift. But again, this was 1938 when they created this. This isn't like it was yesterday. So, you know, here we are, 1993. Unfortunately, we are in a situation. We have two teenagers murdered at their employment by unknown assailants with robbery, most likely the motive. And what are you going to tell a teenager who wants a job? I mean, if a kid wants a job and wants to earn money for his family, and in a lot of families, it is a sign of manhood and adulthood when you take a position as an employee. So a lot of these kids are raised with that mentality. So again, you can't really restrict it when the kid wants to do it. And of course, a kid wants to take on as much responsibility as He can because he's a kid and he's invincible and he thinks he can do whatever he wants. But this is where I think a manager or the store owner should step in and say, "Okay, well, this is where I think you can work and this is where I think you should work. And no, you won't be closing because that's probably not the safest thing for a young person to be doing. I mean, this is 1993. We're not like this isn't the old days of It was a time of crime. I don't understand it. So anyway, after the federal government's crackdown, Wendy's, actually based here in Ohio, said that they no longer hire workers 16 years or younger. That brings me back to Brown's Chicken, where they appeared on the surface to be following those guidelines. The owners had three daughters and had only purchased the store months before the killing. Employees spoke about how the owner's warmth created a family atmosphere at the restaurant even as they worked 16-hour days to make their venture a success. The franchise owners had just completed some major remodeling and exterior renovation on the building, according to associates. Quote, they got the job done, said Mike Nakeda, who had worked at the store until November. Quote, it usually took us longer to close because they were still learning and didn't really know what they were doing, but they were really nice people. Mike Jonas of Palatine, a sales representative whose clients included the owners, described them as down-to-earth people. They were the kind of people who would take you over to their side of the booth, give you a Coke or a cup of coffee, and talk about their children or where they grew up. Jonas said another victim, Maldonado, who was the cook, had returned to the northwest suburbs only a month prior After leaving his home in central Mexico, Maldonado was 48 and he was married, was the father of three young boys that had lived with his family in an area for five years previously and worked as a cook at the Mount Prospect restaurant. Hey, fellow true crime aficionados. I've stumbled upon the ultimate hidden gem, Dakota Spotlight by James Wollner. It's a revelation. Picture this. Thoroughly researched, original, and peppered with real interviews. No sensationalism here. Just gripping storytelling with heart. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll always want more. So cozy up and join me on the edge of your seat. Trust me, this podcast is the real deal. Start with the Mandan murders and prepare to be hooked. Let's uncover this treasure together. Listen to Dakota Spotlight. Family members said that Maldonado started at Brown's several weeks ago as a stopgap while waiting for his old job to open up at Ye Old Town Inn in Mount Prospect. The family was living with Maldonado's younger brother, Pedro, in a Palatine apartment complex. We would not believe it, said Juan Maldonado, Guadalupe Maldonado's sister-in-law. He was such a good man. He didn't deserve this. Michael Castro, who lived with his family... Three blocks from Brown's, and often walked to work. In the summer, it was described by friends as a good student who was quiet but fun, and always looked after his friends. Quote, I knew Michael. I know his mother. They are a beautiful family," said Mary Josh, a neighbor and family friend for ten years. The family was an active member of the Saint Teresa Catholic Church in Palatine. Quote, when someone needed your help, he was right there. When my son was cut, Michael brought him to me and made sure that he was looked after. Menes, who lived with his twin brother Jerry, was working at the restaurant for two months after working for a roofing company, according to his stepmother, Frances. She said he liked to watch television, go bowling, and frequent a local pub to have a drink and play darts. He was a quiet kind of boy who had kept to himself. Sounds like a pretty normal guy that you would see at your local Tavern. That's the way I would look at it. He tried to do the best he could in life. Frank Portillo, the president of Brown's Chicken and Pasta, which is based in Oak Brook, said the company operates uh, somewhere around 300 stores between Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Florida. Half of the stores were franchised, and half were owned by the company. Quote, myself and everyone at the Brown organization extend our deepest sympathy to the victims of this tragedy, Portilla said at a news conference as he choked back tears. Quote, we are a close-knit family and we all feel this loss. According to Sam Vignola, the owner of four Browns stores in Rolling Meadows, the chain tells its franchise owners to vary the times they deposit money or remove money from their safes to deter robberies. Vignola, who said robberies have not been a problem for the chain, called the Palatine franchise a very high-volume store, adding that it was in the top 10% of stores in the area. In addition, though new to the restaurant business, the owners were very careful about the way they ran their store and were particularly concerned about the safety of those employees. Casey Sander Seventeen, A Browns employee had worked for the company for about five months and said that the restaurant started her off at about $4.25 an hour and increased to $5 after six months. And like other young people, the store's teen's employees put their money into their passions. Castro, for instance, put most of his money into his car, said Sander, who normally works on Friday nights but didn't this time. Mullins said the murders would add another level of fear to the standard concerns parents have about letting their kids out of their sight. Quote, Every parent has nightmares of car accidents and stuff, but not murder. Officials did arrange for crisis counseling at the school for students, and Sanders said that she had heard the news of the shooting on the radio at home about 7 a.m. That's when she threw on her clothes and rode her bicycle to the store she did arrive and find six or seven of her fellow workers and embraced them to deal with the tragedy. Quote, They were really happy to see me. It was a very strange feeling, Sanders said. They thought I was dead, and I thought they were dead. Daphne Matu, a cashier at the restaurant from Arlington Heights, said she stopped by Brown's about 4 p.m. on Friday to pick up her paycheck, and everything seemed normal. You know, I remember I was about to walk out of the store and I turned around and looked at everybody and said, I don't know why I did that, but that was the last time I saw them. And according to the Associated Press, the case of the murders at the Palatine Brown's chicken restaurant went cold pretty quickly after doing about 300 interviews, there was really not much to go on and nobody was really talking. And generally speaking, in a job like this, you would think it would be potentially an inside job. So after three years of the case staying cold, the city decided to release evidence in the massacre case and see if they could stir up any tips and now three years had gone by in the efforts to solve the killings but police did show the public a few pieces of evidence as they faced mounting criticism over their investigation police did acknowledge but denied the allegations about the brown's chicken and pasta massacre were marred by ineptitude They insisted their disclosures at a news conference were motivated solely by a desire to refresh the memory of anyone who dealt with the killer. The evidence, which police have known for about at least a year but was never made public, indicates that the killings were likely made between 9.08 p.m. and 9.48 p.m. on January 8, 1993 by a large lone male. Armed with a revolver and wearing Nike shoes. He likely drove a, or rode in a white two door Camaro type car of the late 1980s vintage. Now just take a pause here. Doesn't that sound like the Terminator or somebody that you would see in any 80s movie or 90s bad guy type of scenario? It just seems very broad, but either way, again, the shoe prints found inside the restaurant indicated the killer wore Nike Air Force gym shoes, which were sized 12 and to 14. So the shoes that were worn by someone were between six feet and six feet and six inches tall. The gunman reloaded at least three times, three, that's three and removed all the spent casings from the scene. Police believe that the weapon was a 38 or a 357 caliber revolver made either by Smith & Wesson or Ruger. So, I want to run you through a quick timeline of the crimes before we wrap up this week's episode. So, the murders occurred on January 8, 1993. That was when the seven people were found murdered in a Brown's Chicken and Pasta restaurant at Smith Street and Northwest Highway in Palatine. The victims included the owners, Richard and Lynn, two high school students, Michael Castro and Rico Solis, and three other men, Guadalupe Maldonado, Thomas Menez, and Marcus Nelson. Their bodies were discovered after worried family members had called police to report them missing. On January fifteenth, 1993, police arrest five men but quickly release all but one who was held on an unrelated charge. The five turned out to have nothing to do with the chicken murders. On January twenty-fifth, 1993, the reward for information leading to the arrest reaches a whopping $100,000. Almost a year and three months go by. On March 21st, 1994, Palatine police arrest and then release another Chicago man. In April 1995, a new Brown's Chicken and Pasta quietly reopens in a mall near Northwest Highway and Hicks Road in Palatine with a state-of-the-art security system. They brought in former FBI investigator James F. Bell to investigate with the Palatine police. He worked on the case, as of a number of uh, popular serial killers, Ted Bundy, the Green River Killer, and many more. Now, I will leave it at that, because that is kind of where we stand at the moment. I will leave you with this little tidbit before next week's episode. In an article from Rolling Stone. They say as soon as the investigation began in 1993, Juan Luna had been one of 300 current and former employees to be interviewed, according to the New York Times. Please remember that name, Juan Luna. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this week's episode of Who Killed?, And thank you to everyone who has helped build the show to the level that it has become. I am utterly grateful and humbled by the listenership. And thank you guys again so much. And I hope you guys will stay tuned for next week's episode of part two of the Palatine Browns Chicken Massacre. As a reminder, I do drop new episodes of Who Killed on Fridays, and while I am continuing to edit Season 2 of My Passion Case, those will eventually be dropped on Mondays. So, for the second year in a row, I will be representing Who Killed and Who Killed Amy Maholovic and My Passion Case on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando. This is definitely a bucket list item for any true crime fan. The dates have been moved, obviously, and they are now October 30th through November 1st, so it'll be a little Halloween crime con experience, which will be pretty cool. And if you guys want to save money on your ticket, you can use my promo code, Amy2020. If you enjoy this podcast and my other shows, you can help support independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of the my website, slowburnmedia.com. That is slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. I will provide a link in the show notes as well. And every contribution does help keep these Slow Burn podcasts running. You can also support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Because those five stars do keep these important cases I cover in the spotlight. So, if you guys have any information regarding any of the unsolved cases that I've covered, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. And if you want to submit a tip anonymously, you can always do so via Crime Stoppers. So, if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases I have covered, as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys so much again for listening this week. And until next time, be healthy and safe. Or wherever fine podcasts are found. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, We explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.